Welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we work to amplify the voices and ideas of changemakers in education. We talk with students, educators, and thought leaders who are questioning the status quo and resisting tradition in education. I am so excited to announce the release of my new book, Rebel Educator, Create Classrooms Where Impact and Imagination Meet. It's now available on Amazon and anywhere where you read or listen to your books. So welcome Rebel Educators to this episode of the Rebel Educator Podcast. Welcome everyone. I am here today with Dr. Marina Vasserman. She is a doctor of social work with a focus on social innovation to close the equity gap of access in schools and services. She is founder and head of school at Open Mind School, a nonprofit lab school in pursuit of high quality research on learning. Open Mind School focuses on accessibility and inclusion, curriculum development, research, professional development, and educational experimentation for the purpose of supporting the community as a resource, supporting the improvement of learning for all children. She is also founder of Foster the Foster Family, which matches local volunteers and community organizations with a foster family to provide a network of support for those working hard to spread their hope and compassion to our most vulnerable at-risk youth. Her background is in the field of mental health, neuroscience, and educational advocacy. She specializes in working with foster youth, children identified as gifted learners, and children with learning differences. And one of the really special parts about this particular podcast is this is the first in a mini-series that we'll be doing on Open Mind School and their social innovation lab and talking with a few of their students. So welcome, Marina. I'm so excited to chat with you. Likewise, I'm very happy to be here today. So Open Mind, I love the idea of creating a school for educational experimentation. And I haven't seen those words used together very often. And I know that you call yourself a lab school. So tell us about the challenge that you were looking to solve by opening Open Mind School and kind of the evolution that it's taken. Absolutely. You know, as a social worker, I look at many, many societal problems through the lens of grand challenges that we find in social work. For me, that has always, always been and resonated with eradicating social isolation. When I think about relationships and social connections with others, I think that those are the greatest components for a catalyst for change. However, here comes the problem in education, right? There are too many marginalized youth that have been isolated within the K-12 system. School system is a very, very complex piece to try to navigate and to really try to uproot in a more creative forward-thinking model. My hope has always been to somehow be able to look at and break down the stereotypes and the barriers to create a more inclusive community. And, well, if you've ever seen me out in the community with children, you probably know that that's where my heart lives. So coming up with a school to be able to do that was really, really something I was drawn to. The idea of creating a pilot model program, something that redefines the very definition of inclusion and what inclusion means to me and hopefully to others is really what we're looking at to be able to eradicate social isolation for students who are in the community. When we first opened doors at Open Mind, we were looking at supporting really a subset of students in the educational system who were just sort of being missed. And since then, it's really evolved and changed a great deal. Let's talk about what is inclusion. So I think when we talk about inclusion from a school point of view, it means a lot of different things. 
And so there's definitely a lot of isolation in some schools and separating students into special day classes, separating into special education programs, and then bringing them back into general education classrooms. And I've seen inclusion look everything from, you know, rolling in a student in a wheelchair to the back of the room so that they're included in the class, but then rolling them back out again. And there's no real interaction and collaboration to, you know, having what's called full inclusion in a classroom, but still having so many different pullout sessions where that student might only be in the classroom 30, 40, 60% of the time because of all the other services. And those services definitely are necessary. And I know that schools are grappling with different models of what works and how to support their students. But what does inclusion look like to you? That's a great question. I think that is the foundation of everything, right? And one of the difficulties within the educational sector is exactly what you're pointing out, that it is defined differently among so many different schools. And that's crossing from public to private to non-public schools and how they're looking at that. When I use the word inclusion, I define it as a genuine, I'm going to say that again, because there, there's a huge emphasis right there, a absolute genuine sense and feeling of belonging. Inclusion to me is not ever by any means a room on the other side of campus, down the hall, over there, labeled room 302. No, inclusion is a theoretical construct. It acts as a guiding star and it should be something that is a feeling and is a sense. Taking a student with disabilities, putting them in a gen ed classroom, that is not inclusion. That is not good inclusion. Because inclusion means you belong and you're a part of. And that really takes a leadership position and executive role to sit there and think about how do you create and design inclusive spaces and spaces that are really meaningful to all students who are a part of that classroom and a part of that school culture as a whole. And I think that's one of the really big pieces when you see other schools using that term or thinking about this percentage of time they're included because they're out on the playground with others or this percent, that is not inclusion. It's not. And it's not a classroom down the hall. It is every day, all day, beginning of the day to the very end of the day, having your community and building that up. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. But that's a really hard thing to do from a school standpoint, from a leadership standpoint, from a societal standpoint. I know for me growing up, special education was a dark corner. It was a room at the back of the school. The door was always closed. The students who were there had a separate lunch hour. They had a separate break hour. They had a separate PE hour. Like there was nothing at all included. And I think for a lot of people who are now teachers and now administrators, that's the model that we were brought up with and taught. And so shifting that mindset can be really challenging. So you're looking at shifting a mindset, not only of a leader of a school, but also of society. So how do you go about working with leaders and working with the school districts that you do with your students to start to make that mind shift? That's probably the biggest challenge, right? And one of the things that we're hoping to do with Open Mind, the idea is that it's a pilot model program. We're not looking to have hundreds of students in our school. We're not looking to have dozens of different locations. We're looking to say, here's how you put together a truly inclusive space. Here's a pilot model program. There's no magic here. It's best practice. And it's something everyone should be doing everywhere. It's something that should be available in your neighborhood school down the street as an option for every student who lives within that residence in that community. And some leaders, as you can imagine, in some schools are significantly more receptive to that than others. 
I think to be receptive to the idea and concept that students with differing abilities, both strengths and areas of difficulty, can all come together. A couple things need to be part of the the ingredients for that. I think first you need to have this belief that that's something that is possible. You need to have an understanding that potentially the way it's always been done before is not the right way. And that can be really hard. It can be really hard to say, maybe the special ed programs in their design for all of these years were actually designed under the assumption that students will fail because that's how you maintain separation and division within the public sector, particularly around policy and practice. And then you need families, ones who are going to be open-minded and embrace that level of diversity. Because when I go to leaders and I go to principals and I talk to SPED directors and I say, what are your barriers? What are your concerns? What is holding you back the most? What resonates over and over and over again is, well, if I have this student who is exhibiting XYZ, whatever that might be, other parents will complain. There's something within the community that is still a huge barrier that comes and stems from families, whether they're looking for inclusion opportunities or not, whether they're saying they believe in the idea or not. When you put that together in practice and you have, and I'm going to switch demographics for a quick moment because I think this is easier to conceptualize. If you have a student with a trauma-based background who might be part of the dependency system or duly involved, and you have a child who's cursing in a classroom, who has gone through a lot of hard, a lot of hard, and they're working through that. But part of it is their level of exposure to profanity or language or, or whatever it might be through a multitude of contexts. You throw them in, in a classroom with other students and you have parents complaining. The school is responding to that, often not saying, let's rally together. Let's learn about this child's journey, their story, and let's step up as a community to be a system of support. They're saying, you're right, this is unacceptable. This language is not allowed. We need to find you somewhere else to go. And that's where you start to see suspension. You start to see expulsion. You start to utilize and explore alternative forms of schooling. And those are really huge problems. And it's built in. It's creating a system that continues to divide and subdivide and is really not geared towards what we would consider inclusion. Unfortunately, it's creating and manifesting into little children who have had a lot of hard, whatever that is growing into adults who don't have a system of support and, again, who are unintentionally socially isolated. Yeah, I want to address a couple of things you said and share a story from when we started our school as well. So talking about other parent complaints and what that looks like when you bring in inclusion and the wide definition of what inclusion is. So my daughter, who had cerebral palsy, was fully included in the classroom and in a mainstream classroom. And One of my good friends who's now on our board of directors, and I tell this story frequently, so she's heard me tell it. But our first day of kindergarten, she's kind of a tiger mom. Her daughter was reading. Her daughter was above grade level. Her daughter was doing math coming into kindergarten and took a look at my daughter and went, oh, no, there's a student who uses a wheelchair. She has disabilities. She's going to hold the whole class up. This isn't ever going to work. I don't want my daughter in this classroom with this student because it's going to hold her back. And as the year went on and as they progressed and as the universe would have things unfold, the two of them became best friends. (laughs) And so she tells stories about coming to our house for playdates and not knowing like how the kids were going to play. How are they going to communicate? How is this going to work? Like my daughter can run around and play and talk and her friend can't. So what are we going to do? And as adults just couldn't conceptualize how that would work. 
The kids, however, had a great time, played together, communicated just fine, learned how to talk to each other, and really honestly became best friends. And so she tells that story now, looking back, understanding how much her daughter gained from that. In no way did it hold back her academics, but it gave her the opportunity to see differences, to understand how to communicate in different ways, to understand and really be able to put yourself in someone else's shoes for what they're going through. So different than like a trauma-informed situation that you described, but still bringing in this parent complaint and parent misunderstanding of what it looks like when we have a lot of different types and different ability students in the classroom. But what I think that you talked about is really magic. You said there's no magic, but I think there's really magic there. When you talk about how we can build a community that instead of ostracizing and othering and saying, you're right, this is against our policy and procedure, instead, if we can build that community that really rallies together and looks for understanding, believes that we can create a space where we can all work together, understands that change is possible and shifts that narrative from assuming failure This is essentially why we originally isolated kids, right? We assume they're going to fail in the classroom. When we shift that to assuming competence and assuming that all kids have the ability to learn, all kids have the ability to make progress, all kids have the ability to work together, how does that shift then that sense of belonging and allow our communities to rally together? So how do you do that at Open Mind? You know, you began as a school and now you really encompass a whole community. So what does that look like? Can you walk us through that growth and how you really build and rally that community together behind students? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think your your story really highlights the essence of everything we say, which is children want to be with other children. And we create these stereotypes as adults. Adults create this need for separation or this need for divide. And it's a very different feeling than children feel. They're not born into the world feeling, I can't play with this I don't want to be around that. Those are things that we create over time. And that's really, really a huge piece of the K-12 education in terms of how it's traditionally set up and structured. And that's for a multitude of separation and programming across the board. I talk about this a lot within gifted education as well. Um, We see it most prevalent around special education, but it it really spans the wide, wide difference in students and, and their experiences. And I think, yes, fundamentally, if we start at an early, really young age, having children and the expectation is our schools must represent the demographic of our community. And that is a large level of diversity on all fronts. Really, really being able to capture that in classroom settings all through the growth span, I think is huge. When I think about us starting a school and then really moving to being a resource in the community, there are several groups who are are the driving force behind that. I think students first and foremost are the ones who are creating and defining what they want to see and how to put it all together. Staff at our organization bring their expertise, their passions, their interests, and they create a lot of what the educational experience looks like because of what they bring to the table. It's the really interesting piece I think about our organization and our model set up in the classroom is we do have content specialists, those who are specializing within a particular segment, be it published authors or Uh, scientists in the field or those who are teaching neuroscience at Stanford who are teaching our students 
whatever it is, it's really looking at content specialists, really interesting, creative folks who are deep, deep, deep into whatever their field of study is, along with educators who are looking at the differentiation of content. And then the whole rest of the classroom is embedded with supports who have a slightly different lens on what they're looking at. That might be classroom support who has a background in mental health, who's full-time in the classroom. That might be someone who has a degree and license in art therapy, who is also in the classroom full-time. Those could be speech paths or OTs or other folks who are pushing into those classrooms. Whatever their angle or lens is, they're bringing a really different viewpoint and a specialization. And yet they're also learning from all of these other fields where they're not experts. And I think that beauty and continuous learning has been a really huge part of our program and our growth and change. Families who show up and are open-minded and big-hearted to step into innovation with each other, even when it's hard, has been a really big piece. And then finally, community. And you and I can talk about this when you pick up the phone and you say, hey, I'm going to need you to send a sub over today. And we go and we rally and we send a sub to your school. It is not uncommon for schools to reach out for whatever it might be that comes up, because the truth is, until we all band together and figure out how to leverage each other's strengths, we're going to be providing services in silos that don't actually expand beyond our walls into the community. So I think one of the huge components of serving the larger scale is being really mindful of what those needs are across different schools and school cultures. As we grow and we learn, I think we're continuously redefining what open minds should be and what it can offer. One thing is for sure, regardless of what programs we add or how we look at um, supporting pairs in other schools or pushing curriculum development into different sectors or whatever that might be, the students continue to be the center of everything. No doubt with all of their diversity, each and every one of them experiences a sense of belonging at open mind and a genuine feel that not only are there problems in the world, really big social justice and societal problems, but a feeling that perhaps maybe they are the right person to address and to start to really challenge those. So in full disclosure for our listeners out there, I have known Marina for quite a while, and she has been a mentor and a huge help for us in opening up Academy and everything that we've grown. And so when she talks about community, it literally brings a tear to my eye because she has been so amazing for us. And I know that that's not just for me and my school. I know that that's for the community at large. And so she's not just speaking words, but this rings true through all of her actions and everything that she believes as well. But I love how you bring it back to being student-centered and your staff is coming in and you're giving them the independence to thrive within their classrooms and also the opportunity to learn so much. So they're all given that opportunity to be learners of each other because you have so many different experts in different areas in the classroom that they can really model that learning for students as well, which is something that's really special and magical. So looking at one of the other pieces that you've brought into Open Mind School, and again, we'll share the social innovators in the next Rebel Educator episode, but I'd love to hear your take on, on the Innovation Lab and how that program got started and how it's really working to give students agency and voice. You mentioned, how do we give our students the voice to really be those change makers to take on those big societal problems that are out there? Absolutely. I think the Social Innovation Research Lab group is a perfect example of 
how an evolution of a program really is sparked and inspired by students and staff, and it evolves into being a core component of something that we offer and that we're constantly looking to improve and to grow. We had a staff member who has a background in cognitive science, and we've talked about this idea and concept of the research and what that looks like in publishing original research. We've always done a lot with data analytics and using that information to create optimal learning environments. That's been a core component of our programming from the very beginning. But the idea happened on one end, the staff came and said, I really, really want to look at what it means to create a true, true social innovation lab. And at the exact same time, a student came and said, you know, I'm really struggling with making meaningful friendships. And I love things that maybe I'm not finding aligning with others. And one of those things is science and advocacy and the work I'm doing. And I'm just not connecting in a way I want to socially and building meaningful long-term friendships. So I sat there with all of these ideas and said, okay, well, it's clear. And they really define what that would look like creating and bridging this divide with what's happening in research, the ideas and concepts with social innovation and social justice, the high school students taking the lead on this, and then us as professionals helping to be connectors. What does it look like for them to bring their passions and their ideas to the table and us to leverage our resources and connections in the community to elevate and to really disseminate the information of their perspective and their voices? Those have been really, really big core features and been a lot of how this got started. Now, what ended up evolving, of course, is over the last year, because this has been a concept for less than a year, um, we've had students join the lab who are from Open Mind School. We've had students there from Milpitas High School, from East Palo Alto Academy, from the School of Independent Learners, from Sacred Heart, from San Mateo High School. It's a huge eclectic mix. The 49ers School is another one that comes to mind. We're really looking at bringing all of these high schoolers really from the San Francisco Bay Area, but also beyond together to say, hey, what is it that drives you? What fuels you? And then how do we create and support those opportunities? Their passion projects range really from video presentations for college students about neurodiversity. They've created first responder training materials. They've run social innovation labs for USC in their doctorate programs. They've created curriculum materials. They presented at the Stanford Neurodiversity Summit. They've published books. They've published articles. They are um, soon to be, as you mentioned, featured on your podcast, which they're thrilled about. But they are all stemming from they are identifying a problem. There's a problem in this area. They're creating and receiving mentorship in doing something to address that and then really figuring out how to disseminate that beyond just our group that meets together. So just to be clear, they've accomplished all of these things, this long list that you just mentioned, and you've been an innovation lab for less than a year. Yes, they are remarkable. It's incredible what students can accomplish when they're given the resources and the connections and the facilitators that believe in them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. What a great example of community and also of leadership you know, of all of your staff and community coming together saying, hey, we have this challenge and the student has this question and how can we create something to support them and elevate voices and bring them together? I'm so excited to talk to them. <laughs> so one of the questions that I always love to ask because I run an elementary school 
is if you can share a story that you remember from your elementary school years. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting one. So pieces of my elementary school that folks who don't know me well would not know is I was not born in this country. So when I moved out to the United States, I was very much an English as a second language learner. Big learning curve when you're coming to a country where you don't know the language or you don't have any social ties and you're really building up from from the ground up everything in your own community. Perhaps as I say that, it's a little bit of the entrepreneurial (laughs) type of spirit of you can and you start with a concept and idea and, and grow it out. But a lot of my early elementary years was really trying to find a sense of self and what that looked like and and how to establish that in a place that was so unknown and so unfamiliar. And I think for me, and, and probably I would imagine a lot of listeners that there are those few teachers in your life who really just kind of stand out. And for me, I had a second grade teacher, an 11th grade teacher, and then a professor in social psych at NYU. And those are my three who kind of guided me. So in elementary school, I think the biggest piece was in a second grade class. And it was interesting. And some of this will be familiar and and I'll kind of age myself in other ways. But it was really popular and trendy to wear your backpacks on one shoulder to get in line and line up and stand there. And it was really interesting because everyone sort of wanted to be in the middle of the line. The middle of the line was the really cool place to be and to hang out. It it was almost as if someone wouldn't catch you in in the back or front if you were kind of sandwiched between the middle. And what it created, and this is sort of unintentional and it was just really done by the teacher in that space, is she did something that meant nothing. And I don't think she even thought about it, but she took the line of the lineup this way and started to create circles. And that was how everyone lined up in the class. And it was a full round circle as opposed to a beginning, middle, and end line. And I don't know if she intended to or not, but somehow all of this idea of running and being somewhere in place stopped mattering because everyone was the front, the back, and the middle. And it was a moment that was a visual representation of equity in a way that was probably not even intended to be so powerful or so meaningful. And I think I can still sit back and remember that. And remember that there were no longer the cool kids in the middle or these folks at the end of the line or the front. We all had an even playing field. And I think when I look at how that resonates in moving forward and really thinking about equity, a lot of it is how do you even the playing field? I think it's interesting that you choose a social structure. (laughs) A lot of people choose a project or a field trip or like a memory. And you remember the social structure that created equity. I'm going to have to give credit and assume that your second grade teacher knew exactly what she was doing in leveling that playing field. And I'm also guessing that you were one of the kids who was probably towards the back of the line and wanting to be cool in the middle, coming in as an English language learner. And so that memory for you stands out because it really elevated your status into equality. It probably stands out for the kids that were in the middle, too, because it in some ways de-elevated their status to equality. <laughs> Amazing, right? So simple and so basic. And yet sometimes that's what it takes to really be movers and shakers. It's just taking something that's been done over and over again in one way and flipping it upside down and seeing it work and change lives. I think that's the definition of disruption. How do we take what we've always done and do it differently? But still, at least in the case of education, that we get to, you know, what everybody sees as the right 
outcome, right? We still want all of our students learning what they need to learn to be successful in life and in the world. But how do we do that in different ways so that we can be equitable, so that we can assume competence, so that we can bring our communities to rally together around the support of our students instead of creating social isolation? So Marina, how can people get in touch with you if they'd like to reach out later? Absolutely. We are all over everything social media that is Open Mind School. So please, please, please check us out. You can also reach us at www.openmindschool.org. You'll see all of our contact information. If you're looking to reach out to me directly, I would love to hear from you at marina at openmindschool.org. That's M-A-R-I-N-A at openmindschool.org. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Marina. Absolutely. Thanks. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Rebel Educator podcast. I'd invite you to check out rebeleducator.com, where you can see all of our upcoming workshops, webinars, and professional development opportunities. Upacademysf.com, where you can see our current progressive elementary school in action. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to leave a review and rate our show so that others can find it and love us too. Keep resisting tradition, Rebel Educators. Thank you.